So uh, let's look at the book of Mark together first in the passage we read there. And we'll take you through a meditation on it and a quest. And we'll have a couple personal glimpses of our Rabbi Yeshua from it. In uh, Mark chapter 13 verse 3, we have a personal glimpse. Now in the books of Matthew and Luke... It just says that the disciples asked the Master what the sign of the destruction of the temple would be and a couple of those things. But in the book of Mark, because this is more a more personal glimpse um, through the eyes of Shimon Kepha, the eyes of Simon Peter, it says who exactly was there. And it turns out it wasn't all the disciples. It says as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, four of, the, four of his guys, uh, Peter, James, John, Andrew, were questioning him privately. So this was an inner circle conversation. This was a private discussion they were having. And we learned a couple of things from this. We learned that our teacher, our rabbi, both then and now, has concentric circles around him of people. And he has different levels of closeness in terms of the rapport we can have with him. The, uh, the closeness of communication we can experience with him. Uh, the intimacy that we can have with him. And... The encouraging thing is, that's not to say that he's elite and that he only takes certain people in. It's open for all of us. Um, what we learn from this is we can be as close to the master as we want to be. The only, the only thing that determines it is our desire for him. How close do you want to be to the master? How, how clearly do you want to hear his voice? Um, how much would you like to be one of those people of whom it's written about in Amos that God doesn't do anything without first telling his friends? without first speaking to his servants, the prophets. And so we see that even in, even in the prophecy from the book of Mark chapter 13, Yeshua didn't even tell all of his 12 this. He only told four of these guys. And that inspires me to desire the closest walk with him that I can have. To hear his voice for myself. To, to take my questions to him about the news and what I read on uh, CBC in the mornings. I read CBC website every morning. Um, Arut Sheva, Israel National News, these different things. And, and hear his commentary. Get his take on what's going on in the world. So we learn that from this. Uh, Mark chapter 14. We didn't read this one, but that's the other half of our reading. It uh, talks about the last Seder. Yeshua's last Passover Seder with his inner circle. And uh, I did a teaching on this on Shabbat, January 2nd. And so I'm not going to go into detail with that. But if you, haven't, if you didn't catch that teaching, check it out on the website. Uh, we went over just how many ways this was a classic Jewish Seder that the Master was having. And just how meaningful it is to not only just have the, you know, the elements like we will often have in our church tradition with the, you know, the little cup of grape juice and the little piece of bread or whatever, but to do a full Seder, a full Passover Seder. It just... It just uh, it just, it's like going from black and white TV to full color plasma television with uh, Dolby around, uh, was it Dolby uh, surround sound? Yeah, like that's, that's the difference. So I'm looking forward to our congregation doing our Pesach Seder this year. It's going to be an amazing experience. Um, a personal insight that really touches my heart is in chapter 14, verse 36. We get a glimpse into the Master's prayer life. His, his private prayer life between just him and his father. And we learn in chapter 14, verse 36, the Yeshua was in the habit of calling the omnipotent king not only as a majestic king, not only as the splendid divine being, not only as the almighty, not only by all of these high and lofty terms, but he called him Abba. And 
I really appreciate the fact that Yeshua, who is a Hebrew-speaking Jewish rabbi, his words have come to us through two layers of translation, from original Hebrew to Greek, and then from Greek to English, and we still have this word Abba. They didn't bother to translate it into dad or daddy, because there's just there's no parallel really to the, to the word Abba. If you go to Israel, you'll hear, you'll hear children calling their dads Abba, and it's really touching. Uh, Tears is going to grow up calling me Abba. Our children are all going to grow up calling me Abba. And uh, so whenever you talk to Tears about her daddy, remember to call, call him her Abba to her. That's what she's going to know me as. And uh, what a great inspiration for us too, to have that, that intimate touch. Um, did, I, I pointed out a slide to you. Actually, if you just want to actually uh, go forward, actually, I just realized. Here, here's the, uh, the slide we have for the Barhu, and you'll notice that I made a certain word there bigger. I emboldened it. Can you see what it is? Ha-mavorach. That's correct. Ha-mavorach. And this term actually comes up in Mark chapter 14. Check it out. Chapter 14, verse 61. Uh, Yeshua is being interrogated, and it says, He kept silent and didn't answer Again, the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And the Hebrew there is, Are you the Mashiach? Ben, as in son, Ben Hamavorach, the Blessed One. This isn't a term that we are really familiar with if we come from a Christian tradition, but this is a classic appellative for God in the Jewish tradition, Hamvorach. And we, we see that here in the book of Mark. It gives us that Jewish context, and we also see it every week in our worship. So hopefully that just gives you a, a deeper understanding of what it is when we call him Hamvorach, the Blessed One. He who is worthy to be blessed. Who, he who deserves all of our praises. Uh, we're going to do a little TPM here, tackling popular misconceptions. Have you guys been enjoying these sections? Yes. <laughs> I have too, they're fun. And I just, you know, as I, as I share these ideas with you, as I give you my perspective, I invite you, go hit the history books. Study the Bible for yourself. Compare what I'm seeing to saying to the ultimate truth of Wikipedia. <laughs> Just kidding. But you know, like go and check out your sources and, and see if what I'm saying isn't true with some of these areas where, where we're slaughtering sacred cows and we're, we're tackling popular opinion that may, may in fact be erroneous to some degrees. Here's an interesting one. Uh, chapter 14, verse 62. Yeshua uses what we call a circumlocution. Now, in the Second Temple era, we've been talking about how it was traditional to avoid pronouncing God's holy name and instead using his titles or using substitute terms. So often, instead of people, when they read the text of the Torah, instead of reading God's name, which is spelled yod heh reading Yahweh, they would read Adonai. Uh, this this uh, David Stern's translation is a great example of that. This is an interesting example of this. Yeshua doesn't just call him Elohim, God. He doesn't just call him Yahweh or, or some more uh, popular term. He uh, calls him, in chapter 14, verse 62, power. He says, I am, and you are going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's not something we generally call God, is it? Yeah, I was just spending some time with power this morning, and he spoke to me and said this. You know, yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to a synagogue next Shabbat and worship power. But this is the name of God. And maybe it gives us a feel for who he is. And in fact, the Hebrew term for God, Elohim, it means the omnipotent, the all-powerful. 
And so it's not surprising that Yeshua called him that. Uh, the Hebrew term here, the parallel would be Gevurah. Hagevurah is uh, the, the power, the source of power. And, uh, you know, in, in, in our movement, there is a movement of returning to the use of God's holy name in prayer, in worship, in our expression of uh, allegiance to Him. And that's good. I appreciate that. But it's important when we use the name Yahweh to remember that it is holy. And that Yeshua didn't always use it. He did use circumlocutions. He was creative in the appellations he used for the divine. And, and so it should be for us. Uh, it disturbs me sometimes when I hear people in the movement who only use the Hebrew terms like Elohim or Yahweh. And they get to the point where they don't even say terms like Lord or God. And it, it creates a communication barrier. But it also is disturbing in certain contexts. Like someone will be telling a joke and maybe it'll involve St. Peter and the pearly gates and something about God. And instead of saying God in the context of a joke even, they'll say God's holy name. And that's wrong. That's making light of his name. He said that's something he doesn't forgive people for in the Ten Commandments. So as we return to using the name of God, let's always ensure we do it in reverence and in a proper context. So that doesn't directly apply to all of us in this room. That's a word for the kind of the broader movement, Messianic Jewish movement. Okay. We are, uh, last week we, uh, we learned a couple of Greek words. Hyros is what? Temple, Hierius is priest, therefore our horology is what? It's what we believe about the temple and the priesthood, isn't it? So we're going we're gonna to look at our eschatology this week. The eschaton is the end of days, as we'd call it uh, in the Jewish tradition, the Acharit Hayamim. And uh, we're going to look at what Yeshua had to say about the eschaton and how that can affect our... Uh, Eschatology. Let's look at Mark chapter 13 together. Um, Hannah read a lot of the key verses there, and her translation said, at that time. So we missed all the thens. My, I read the NASB usually, and it has then, but we'll look at that together, and we're going to count a couple. Now this is interesting. The Master's words are at the core of our faith. He is the heart of our study of the Scriptures, our understanding of the Torah, and also his teachings are our primary grid through which we understand the Acharit Hayamim, the end of days. Unfortunately, often we start with Paul, or we start with a couple of verses here and a couple of verses there, and we snip them out and we kind of weave them together, and we make up this picture of what we think is going to happen at the end of the world and the return of Christ, etc. And we kind of get the cart before the horse. Instead of using Yeshua's words as the bedrock for our eschatology, and then interpreting everything else in that grid, we do the opposite. And that's something that we want to be careful not to do. So we're going to look at Yeshua's words, and we're going to let Yeshua's words interpret the rest of the Bible and what it says about the Acharit Haimim. And it's going to be fun. Uh, let's start in chapter, 14, uh, chapter 13, verse 14 together. 13, verse 14. Now we have to establish something right here. Yeshua is talking to a small group of Jewish disciples. But as he's talking to them, he's talking to them in the context of them being believers. Not in the context so much of them being physical Israel. Okay, You could say he's talking to his remnant group. And the reason this is important is because as we go on, he's going to be talking to a set of people. And we need to be clear of the fact that Mark chapter 13 applies to us. 
If we are Christians or Messianic believers or whatever we're called, as disciples of the Master, if we are part of His assembly, His church, then Mark chapter 13 is for us. I want you to say that. Mark 13 is for me. Mark 13 is for me, okay? Okay, so He's talking to you here. Let's start in chapter, verse 14. He says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it shouldn't be, <clears throat> let the reader understand. Now, what he's meaning by that is, uh, hopefully you read the book of Daniel, hopefully you celebrate Hanukkah, and you story the, know the story of Hanukkah, because that's the key to unlock this whole abomination of desolation thing. So let the reader understand who celebrates Hanukkah, and uh, understands the book of Daniel. Because it's about Antiochus Epiphanes, or the fourth, who came a couple generations before Yeshua, and Yeshua is also referencing a future event like this. Then, those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Everybody say, head for the hills! <laughs> Okay, notice he's just said those who are in Judea. This isn't a worldwide phenomenon. Phenomenon. Um, the one who's on the housetop shouldn't go down or to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. Uh, the book of Matthew also records that the Master said, pray that it won't happen on Shabbat. From this we learn that Yeshua expected that his people would be observing the Sabbath at his return. Because if they weren't, there would be no reason to pray that this uh, event would hap- wouldn't happen on Shabbat. For those days will be a time of tribulation. Uh, tribulation there has the, con- the connotation of like huge crisis, massive distress, when you're caught between a rock and a hard place. Trouble. Um, there'll be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which Elohim created until now, and never will. Okay, let's just stop right there. So it says the abomination of desolation. It starts something. The Yeshua says a time of tribulation that will be unparalleled in all of history. Now, there's a view out there called the preterist view that would like to write all of the Master's prophecies off as having been fulfilled by AD 70 with the destruction of the Second Temple. Therefore, all of these things don't apply to us anymore. The book of Revelation already happened 2,000 years ago. That's what's called the preterist view. Right? The, the problem with that is it doesn't leave us, give us any clarity for what's going to happen in the future. We are left disoriented and in the dark. But that's not the biggest problem. The biggest one is Yeshua said that in conjunction with this tribulation it would be unparalleled in history. Now the destruction of the second temple, which the preterist view says this applies to, that was catastrophic. It was a massive crisis for the Jewish people. But there weren't even two million Jewish people who were killed at that time, according to Josephus and records like that. Has there been a time in history since then that has been a greater tribulation for the people of Israel? Yes, the Holocaust. So hopefully the, 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 the Holocaust kind of clears that up. Okay, so we can just kind of like preterist view, scratch, okay? This stuff has yet to happen. All right. So let's just continue on here and we're just going to let the Master's words interpret themselves to us, okay? It's talking about in verse 19, a time of tribulation that's unparalleled. And then it says something very interesting. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. In other words, it's going to be a time of global catastrophe on such a magnitudinous level that if it hadn't been cut short, humanity would go extinct. 
But he's going to cut those days short. And the question is why? Right there. For the sake of the chosen, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now let me ask you something. Are you part of the chosen? Yes, Yes, you are. If you're a disciple of Yeshua, then you're part of the chosen. Are Christians part of the chosen? Yes, they are. Is the Messiah's true church part of the chosen? Yes, they are. Therefore, are we, as the body of Christ, going to be going through this unparalleled time of tribulation that's going to be so terrible that unless the Lord shortened those days, nobody would survive? Yes. He's going to shorten those days for you. That may suggest that you're not going to get zapped out of this thing before it happens. That may suggest that we're going to be going through this together. Okay? I'm just, I'm just reading the Master's words here. I'm just a really plain level. Alright? I'm, I'm kind of suspecting that the way he's talking, we might be going through this. Let's keep going. Verse 21. And then, ooh, there's that word then. If anyone says to you, behold, here's the Messiah, or behold, there he is, don't believe him. Okay? So again, he's talking to them like they're going to be going through this. Like we're going to be going through this. There's going to be false prophets, false messiahs. And uh, then it goes on in order to lead astray if possible, even the chosen. So again, there he is, the chosen. And uh, let's move on to verse 24. And then he says, but in those days after that tribulation. So after this time of global catastrophe, of huge crisis for the people of God around the world, after that tribulation, what's going to happen? The sun will be darkened, the moon won't give it... It only sounds like it's getting worse here, eh? But he says after the tribulation. So it means things must be getting dead better. The powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they'll see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Is this a public, is this a public arrival of Messiah? Yes, it is. Is he sneaking in to just pull his people out here? Or do we see a massive return in great power, in overwhelming glory, something that all the world will witness? Okay, we're on, okay. let's continue here then. We're, we're on the right track. And then he will what? Then he'll send forth the messengers, the angels, and will gather together his chosen from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Whoa. So what does this culminate with? Verse 27. This scale of events culminates with Yeshua and his public return. Everybody's going to see him. And what does he do? He gathers his people in. Now, this is very key because you can only understand what he's saying here in the Jewish context. He says, he'll gather together. That's the, uh, the Hebrew term there is kibbutz hagaliot. I won't ask you to say that. <laughs> but kibbutz hagaliot means the ingathering of the exiles. Uh, this is my sidur, my Jewish prayer book. And there's a prayer that observant Jewish people pray three times a day, the Shemona Esrei, the 18 blessings. And the 10th one reads thusly. And this is what Jewish people have been praying for 2,400 years. Sound the great shofar for our freedom. Raise the banner to gather our exiles. That phrase there is kibbutz galiot. And gather us together from where? The four corners of the earth. Are you hearing echoes of Yeshua's words? The reason you're hearing echoes is because this is a prayer he prayed on a daily basis for his whole life. If he was an observant Jew, and he was. Blessed are you, Lord, who gathers in the dispersed of his people Israel. Okay, so this is the context of Yeshua's words. He's talking to people who pray this prayer three times a day, who are praying for the ingathering, 
who are praying that it will happen when the great shofar is sounded. And in the book of Matthew, he says that there is going to be an archangel who does sound that great shofar at uh, the time that he gathers his people in. So, I have, this is why I personally have some hesitations about an eschatology that say that at the beginning of the tribulation, Yeshua is going to sneak in and just pull his people out, and then he's going to get let, you know, then he's going to let physical Israel go through the tribulation. Um, this suggests what we call the dual covenant concept, that God has two people, the Christians and the Jews, and of course the Christians, they get taken out. They don't have to go through the tribulation. But those Jews, God's going to let them go through the tribulation. This is a problem. God is one in the heavens above, his people are one on the earth below. And I'm a Messianic Jew, I'm part of Israel. Where do I get left in this picture, right? Do I get cut in half and half of them goes down? I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's not healthy to encourage people to think that God has two people. The church in Israel. God has one people. And uh, maybe it's both of them. Maybe it's neither of all of them. The other, the other thing I have with this is, uh, it says very clearly that the kibbutz galiot, the ingathering at the hands of the messengers that Yeshua is going to send forth, when the great shofar is blown, it happens at his, the time of his public advent. It ha- happens at the time when he returns before the eyes of all the world. It's, it's very plain and clear there what it says. So for that reason, I'm personally, you know, preparing myself emotionally and psychologically, to be going through some tough times in the days ahead. They're also going to be glorious times. We have a God who is the God of the Exodus. He's going to come through for us. He is going to preserve his people. So anyway, that's a little look at that, that passage. And I just offer that to you to uh, consider, to check with uh, your own references and see what you can discover. Okay, let's look at the, uh, the Torah portion together. Chapter 34, verse 14 of the book of Exodus. I'm going to give you a couple of Hebrew nuggets here that you're never going to find in an English Bible. Remember we've been talking about the tittles of the Torah. Yeshua said not one jot or one tittle would be done away until everything is accomplished. There, there's this interesting phenomena of letters in the Hebrew text. Some are bigger, some are smaller, some are suspended, some are upside down, etc. And they point to deeper teachings in the text. You could call them the tittles of the Torah. There are a couple interesting ones in here. Here we see... An enlarged resh. Everybody say resh. resh. And it's in the word acher. Acher. And it's in Exodus, as I was saying, chapter 34, verse 14. And it's in the, ver- it's in the, uh, it's in the verse where it says, don't bow yourself down to another god. The word there for another is acher. The reason they uh, made the resh big, you can skip ahead one, is here. Here's the proof. Verse 14 says, Resh, Ravti, it's a big, it's a big resh, it says in the notes. Um, is because this is a word that looks very similar. See this dalit here? This is the letter dalit. Duh. Go back to so we can just compare. Okay, so here's acher, which is another, don't worship, another god, and then we'll skip forward to. This is echad. Can you see how they look almost exactly the same? That's the part of the Shema where we say, listen Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is Echad, He's one. And the scribes enlarge these two letters because they look so similar. And if you misread it, then you could actually dentally say the Shema is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is another. Or you could read this verse as saying, You shall not bow yourself down to the one God. 
if you just confuse those little letters that are very similar. So uh, how many of you got our Holy Language Word of the Week email? We covered that in some detail and I have some pictures of it. But uh, anyway, that was the Word of the Week and I just wanted to go over it in, in person also because it's a, it's a good one. It's an example of what happens when you study the Word in, in Hebrew. You get all kinds of goodies and I, uh, I love sharing those goodies with you guys. Okay, so um, there's another one like that. And this is one that just, it tickles my Hebrew soul. Okay, I'll share it with you. Just kind of as like a little journal entry from my, my study life. Okay, here's a, go back one. Here it says in verse 7, Nun Ravti. There's a, there's a big noon, a big letter noon. So let's uh, look forward at this noon. It's in uh, chapter... 34 verse 7 of the book of Exodus. Exodus 34 7. And uh, it's in the word for he, like, he keeps his loving kindness. Notzer. He keeps chesed, his loving kindness. And it's interesting that that word notzer is also came to be the root of the word for Nazarene. Yeshua was called Yeshua the Nazarene. Uh, his disciples were a sect of Judaism. They were Judaism of the first century. And uh, they were called the sect of the Nazarenes because they followed Yeshua the Nazarene. Uh, we learn that in Acts chapter 24, verse 5. What do you call a singular Nazarene? You call him a Notzer. <laughs> so here is the Almighty calling himself Notzer Chesed, calling himself like he who keeps loving kindness or grace. But on a deeper level, it's like him saying that I'm the original Nazarene. Yeshua was the angel of the Lord who spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai and gave him the Torah. The Messiah was pre-existent. He was involved in human history from the start. And here he is revealing himself as the first Nazarene on Mount Sinai. Therefore, they put a big noon there to point out that there's a double meaning to this text. There's a deeper teaching. <laughs> so, And it's interesting that that word is in conjunction with the Hebrew word for grace. Yeshua is a, is a Nazarene who is all about the grace of God. Okay, chapter 30, verse 23. Here's a little Hebrew nugget for you. Um, I have an interesting book here I brought for show and tell. It's called The Word, the dictionary that reveals the Hebrew source of English by a linguistic scholar named Isaac E. Moseson. I encourage you to come and check this out. Uh, if you do linguistic studies in English, you'll learn that there's a large subset of words in the English language that are some of the oldest words in English. They come from Old English. They're first, the first time they come, show up in literature is in the four to six hundreds, sometime shortly thereafter. And they're a set of words that they don't really know where they came from. They theorize that they came from an Indo-European root somewhere in India, and somehow these people got all the way to England. And uh, it's actually really quite tenuous, but it's notable to look at this subset of words and discover that these words have a very close relationship to the Hebrew language. They're very similar. The core of the English language, the oldest words in it, have a a very close similarity to Hebrew, to ancient Hebrew. There's a very strong possibility that, however it happened, we're not going to get into that, ancient Israel did influence the modern English language. And here's, here's a fun little example. What is that there? Cinnamon. Did you know cinnamon is mentioned in this parsha? It's one of the spices and the anointing oil. And you know how it's pronounced in Hebrew? 
Kinnamon. Everybody say kinnamon. Yeah, we, we get our English word cinnamon from the Hebrew word kinnamon. So, you can remember that. I like to put kinnamon in my coffee sometime. Anyway, I just wanted to share that with you because it's fun. It's a little example of how Hebrew and English are closer than what you'd think. Okay, let's move on to the next one. That's a swallow. In chapter 30, verse 23 of the book of Exodus, I'm going to give you another Hebrew insight that you're not going to get on the English level. Uh, English is more like a Greek or Latin language. It's very precise, and I appreciate that. But Hebrew isn't like that. Hebrew, you'll have a word, and it can have multiple meanings. And you need to understand from context what it is. And our Creator designed His Torah to be that way because it gives us multiple layers of meaning, and they complement each other. I'm not talking about new doctrine here, right? This is a cool example. In uh, chapter 30, verse 23, it talks about myrrh. And uh, this is another word we get from Hebrew. The Hebrew word is mar. Everybody say, actually, it's more like more. Everybody say more. And uh, you remember Naomi changed her name to Mara because her life was bitter. That's the same root there. More it means it's, it's a bitter spice. It's a, it has a very strong and pungent aroma, apparently. And um, the NASB translates this phrase as flowing myrrh, but the Hebrew says more drawer. More drawer. Everybody say more drawer. Okay. The word for drawer, the word drawer is what's proclaimed on the Jubilee year when it says, and freedom shall be proclaimed throughout the land on the Jubilee year. And both of these contexts come from the Hebrew word for swallow. That is a drawer. Alright? We're learning to think like the ancient Hebrews here. That's a drawer. Can, can you see? Just close your eyes for a moment and, and watch that swallow just hurtling through the sky, flying through the air and, and darting and twisting and turning so sharply. He's so free. And that's, that's where we get the word drawer in Hebrew for freedom from the picture of a swallow. And that's also the word here for myrrh. Uh, the NASB translates it as flowing because to say free myrrh doesn't make any sense. So it's like free-flowing. It's in a liquid form, right? Um, there's a deeper teaching there, though. Myrrh represents times in our lives when we meet the cross, where the Father brings us in contact with Yeshua's suffering, and He takes the gunk out of our lives, and we have to lay things down, and we're just feeling like we're dying inside. There's the bitterness, sometimes. And that's pictured by the myrrh. Yeshua was anointed with myrrh for His crucifixion, wasn't He? That was an example of that. So this conjunction of myrrh and freedom is telling us. It tells us that the times when we experience hardship in our lives, we can respond in one of two ways. We can respond saying, Thank you, Father, that you are bringing me through an experience through which you're going to bring me into a greater degree of freedom in my life. We can see the end result. Or we can respond in the exact opposite way and we can fall under bondage. We can come into captivity. We can end up being trapped by grudges and criticism and, and hatred and anger and frustration and all those things that box us in and control us and make us monsters that we don't want to be. So this is kind of the deeper teaching behind the myrrh and the anointing. There's a bitterness to it, but it brings freedom. So. Uh, chapter 30, verse... 32 also, we discovered that the anointing that was on the high priest, which is a picture of the anointing of the Holy Spirit that's available to each of us, is copyrighted. <laughs> Chapter 30, verse 23 says, Nobody else is allowed to make this mixture under pain of death. This is a very special one. 
And uh, it goes on to say, you don't put this on, like uh, the Hebrew says, Besar Adam. You don't put this on the flesh of humans because it's holy. And uh, what we learn from this is God's anointing, He doesn't just dump it on people who are doing whatever they want and they're sloppy in their discipleship. If you want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you want to have that anointing that's fragrant to the world around you, and that also proves the Messiah is real, and that He's alive today, and that He has the ability to heal people's hearts and save them and break addictions, etc. If you want that in your life, then it takes living a holy life. A life of dedication to the Almighty. Because He doesn't put His anointing on your flesh. Flesh and blood don't inherit God's kingdom. It's when we live in the Spirit. So that's, a, that's an application from this parsha. I'm kind of bringing these things out because it's, some of these sections are challenging. You read it and it's like, okay, a bunch of ingredients, uh, some kind of oil. I'm sure it smells nice, but how does this relate to me, right? How does this apply to my life? So we're looking at how some of these things apply. Alright, let's jump back. We're going to toggle back to our tackling popular misconceptions theme. We're going to look at a couple from this parasha. We talked about six things in last week's parasha that the Almighty said were forever. And interestingly enough, all of them are things that we say were temporary, that they were for a past dispensation, and that they're done away with now. Even though those six things are things that God said are forever and are throughout the generations of the people of Israel. Another one here, this is just an interesting little one. Chapter 30, verse 21. It says, It's a law forever throughout their generations for the Aaronic priesthood to wash their hands and feet before ministering at the altar. And uh, we're going to touch on an interesting misinterpretation of that that's very common in the Jewish world in a moment. Uh, we also talked last week about how even though as, messian- as messianic believers... We, we are called to fly the flag of the Torah. Um, God is restoring doctrine and practice that has been lost to the body of Christ through the centuries. We talked about how baptism as an adult, justification by faith, uh, operating in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, these are things in past generations that people laid their lives down for as they were restored to the body of Christ. We are a movement in which the Father is restoring the Jewish roots of our faith, an understanding of the, that Hebrew origin to, uh, to the body of Christ. Uh, a comprehension of the earlier covenants that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And they, how they apply today, in the world today. And uh, we talked about how these are distinctives of us as a congregation. Uh, we talked about how Shabbat is something that God said was forever. That is something that we, we uphold on a weekly basis as we, uh, as we celebrate God's Holy Sabbath. But we also talked last week about how ultimately these things that we do, or these Little, you know, these areas of doctrine or whatever, they're not our primary distinction. I don't want to be known by that stuff more than anything. I don't want to be known as like, oh yeah, that's Israel. He's the guy who does the Sabbath on Saturday. Or, oh yeah, that's Israel. He's the guy who thinks the Torah is still relevant, you know. You know, that's Israel. He's the guy who, he's really crazy about Israel. Like, I just don't understand it. He just, he just prays for the Jewish people and stuff, right? Those are important, but I don't want that to be the primary thing that distinguishes me. I want to be known as like, that's Israel, and God is with that guy. Like, that guy's tight with the Almighty. Like, he hears from God. That's what I want to be known for. And we see that in this week also in uh, chapter 33, verse 16. Moses is in touch with his heart. He says, Yahweh, isn't it by your going with us, your presence, so that we, I, and your people may be distinguished 
from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth. So heaven forbid in the body of Christ that we would let certain little points of doctrine or certain views of the end times or certain ways that we do baptism or communion or whatever, heaven forbid that these would be our distinctives. We, we pray to the Father on a regular basis that his presence would be what sets us apart as his people on this earth. And uh, we're going to keep pressing in for that. Uh, <laughs> I have a little fun little thing here. It talks about Moses and how the light was streaming from his, uh, his, his face. And uh, the word there for like a streaming is karen or panav. It's like karen is a word that means like a light streaming, but it also means horn. And Jerome took liberties uh, in translating the Latin Vulgate as saying that Moses had horns. So here's an, here's an example of that. Um, Moses' horns shining out of his head. Uh, interesting little misconception that has been very prevalent in the church for, I don't know, I don't, like, I don't know about you, but if I grew up like in a church in the medieval times and like did a picture of Moses with big horns, I would be kind of freaked out. I'd be like, oh, that's the guy who gave the law. The law must be really scary and bad. That guy looks like a bad dude. That's unfortunate because, you know, Paul said the Torah is good. The Torah is for our our safety. There's freedom and boundaries, that kind of idea. Okay, here's another example. Um, Let's say, okay, here's an example of how you need to talk to people on their level, how you need to use the language that they use. Um, or they're just not going to get it. And they might get a totally different idea than what you're trying to say. Moses came down from the mountain with the two tablets in his hands. Now if you say that to someone, let's say in our techie generation, this is what they're going to think of. They're going to think of Apple tablets. <laughs> it's, a, it's a type of netbook. And uh, here's, here's a picture of Steve Jobs the, uh, with a uh, couple of his Apple tablets having come down from his mountain of technological uh, innovation. I don't know. So, Steve Jobs is kind of like the Moses, Moses to some people. He's like the lawgiver of the technological world. But anyway, so there's a little example of what happens when you, can misunder- when you misunderstand a word. So, for us, the application is it's important to understand the Bible in its Jewish context because it was written in Hebrew, most of it, and the people who wrote it thought in Hebrew, and they were Jewish. And when we understand in that context, then we don't end up making all sorts of crazy things out of it. All right. Uh, you can just leave it on that for a moment. It's kind of an entertaining picture. Uh, it talks in here about the Ten Commandments, chapter 34, verse 28. The Hebrew word there is Aseret Devarim. And it literally means the ten words. Just an interesting little difference. There's a difference between commandments and words. Words are bigger. They're areas of communication. Um, the uh, traditional Judaism doesn't call them Aserat HaDevarim, which is the masculine form. It calls them the Eser HaDibrot, which is the feminine case. Uh, chapter 30, verse, verses 19 to 21, talks about Aaron and his sons washing their hands and feet. Uh, you know the tradition, we've talked about this in past weeks in the, in the Jewish world, of washing your hands before you eat and blessing God who has commanded us to wash your hands. We've talked about how that is a fallacy, that is part of the oral Torah, which says that God gave Moses the written Torah, but he gave him another Torah also, the oral Torah. And that one Moses didn't write down. He just communicated it to people, and that's the one where he gave us extra commandments, like washing your hands before you eat. Yeshua did take issue with this. Yeshua didn't support this idea. And it disturbs me how many teachers in the Messianic Jewish community and how many teaching organizations continue to teach people that God commanded them to wash their hands. Um, 
I can think of one organization who's coming out with a Sidur this year, and uh, like a Passover Sidur. And it's a really nice one. I'm looking forward probably to using it. But I, I was looking at it and I was like, it has the blessing in here to God who has commanded us to wash our hands. What are we doing teaching new people that God commanded them to wash their hands? The reason I take issue with this is because God didn't, but also because it says several times in the Torah, don't add to the word or take away from it. And it, it disturbs me when we add to the word or take away from it. So, anyway, that's my little rant for the week in that area. And, uh, anyway, traditional Judaism bases that idea on the concept that Aaron and his sons were commanded to wash their hands and feet. So if you're going to do that, you should make sure you're either Aaron or you're a descendant of Aaron, and you should make sure that you wash your hands and your feet. And then you can bless God who has commanded you to wash your hands and feet. All right. <laughs> um, chapter 31. I just thought it was cool how we got to read about the passage that we read every week, the Vishamru, about the people of Israel celebrating Shabbat. Um, the Almighty actually repeats his uh, commandment about Shabbat twice in this parasha. He says it's something that the people of Israel are to celebrate throughout their generations. I assume that might also mean believers who are grafted into Israel. Uh, I assume God doesn't have two different sets of um, directions and things. And he also says it's a covenant forever. Uh, Isaiah chapter 24 is a fascinating prophecy of the tribulation, of global cataclysm. It says, uh, it's another one of those things where like, if some, if the Almighty hadn't intervened, everybody would die. And it gives the reason for that global cataclysm. It says in chapter 24 of Isaiah verses 5 to 6, that this, this catastrophe on an economic and a geographical scale happens. Why? Because they broke the Brit Olam. Where does that term Brit Olam turn up earlier? In this parasha. It's the word for everlasting covenant. Isaiah 24, these things happen to the world because they break the Brit Olam, the everlasting covenant. What is the everlasting covenant? It's Shabbat. What that tells me is when the people of God observe Shabbat, it is a preservation for the world, just like salt is a preservation for meat. It's a very practical form of intercession for our community. Uh, Isaiah 24, verses 5 to 6. Yeah. And then it goes on to say, what else happens because they broke the everlasting covenant, the Brito Lam of Shabbat? It says, a curse devours the earth. The Hebrew word for curse there is Allah. Everybody say Allah. So what happens when God's people forsake His Sabbath? On a spiritual level, in terms of the spiritual forces that are conflicting in our universe, the spirit behind Allah and militant Islam is given opportunity to surge to the forefront and to wreak havoc on our civilization. So when you celebrate the Sabbath, you are doing spiritual warfare. When you celebrate the Sabbath, you are proclaiming the one God and His sovereignty over creation, and you are driving back the forces that would destroy civilization, that would kill innocent people. That's, what I, that's the connection I get from that. Okay, um, Let's just take a minute here in closing to look at the comparisons between this covenant at Mount Sinai and the covenant that was made through Messiah's blood and that was fully ratified in Acts chapter 3 at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Um, there are some pictures. I'd call them gospel pictures in this covenant. It talks about the tablets in chapter 32 verse 16. And it says the tablets were the work of God. Masse Elohim. And that also means God's action. And what that tells me is when God brings us into a covenant, He does the work in our lives. It's all about His action in our lives. Isn't that true of the new covenant? 
in our experience of the Holy Spirit. It goes on to say that it was inscribed. And it's fascinating that Hebrew word for inscribed is harut. Everybody say harut. And it also means freedom. Only freedom doesn't make as much sense there, so they use the inscribed. What it tells us is there's freedom in the parameters of his covenant. Isn't that cool? Um, we also have the word there for tablets. It's luchot. Everybody say luchot. And that one has a cognate. It means a very closely related word that means something that's fresh and moist and well watered. So in other words, in the, in the giving of the Torah, we have these ideas of freedom. We have this idea of something that's fresh and moist and well watered. We have the idea of Him doing the job. Isn't that true of the New Covenant? Uh, in Acts chapter, sorry, in Exodus 32, 28, 3,000 people died on the day that the covenant was made. Acts chapter 3, 3,000 people were saved and given new life. Did anyone notice that? So there is a place for the ministry of the law. It shows us how messed we are, up we are. We deserve to die. And then there's a place for the new covenant to come sweeping in and to regenerate us and to bring us to God. Um, a lot of people say, they, they find fault with the covenant made through Moses. They say there were problems with this covenant. It was, you know, the silly commandment, or this was unjust, or blah, blah, blah. But we learn in Acts chap, uh, Hebrews chapter 8 that God didn't find fault with the covenant. He found fault with the people. Because God is perfect. Everything that he generates is perfect. Every covenant that he communicates his heart through is perfect. But then there's us. We're a mess. That's why we needed the new covenant. <laughs> so we could actually live up to what he called us to. Um, I love how when Yahweh reveals himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, when he goes back up to get the repetition of the Torah, the second set of tablets, what is the core of this covenant? Often we hear in the dispensationalist worldview that, oh, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant is about law, wrath, works, all this stuff. But what is the heart of the revelation of God in uh, this covenant? He says, Moses, I am a God who is gracious. I am a God who is merciful. I'm patient. I forgive people. This is the heart of the Old Covenant too. Because it's His heart. And of course, it also shows us how we're messed up and how we deserve to die. <laughs> uh, okay, so just to, to finish here, we're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 36. This is the half Torah of the week. It's the accompanying uh, reading from the prophets. And Ezekiel chapter 36 describes a couple of dynamics. And these are new covenant dynamics. These are things that are happening and that have yet to have like, been accomplished fully. So they're still going to happen. And I wanted to read it. It's especially timely because it's about Christopher and about Christopher's trip to Israel. It's about us. Uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 23 is where we'll begin. And uh, this is Yahweh talking here. And he says he's going to do some things. In verse 23, he says he's going to restore his honor among the nations. He's going to vindicate his reputation. In verse 24, he says he's going to take his people from the nations, gather them, and bring them into the land of Israel. Okay? Let's count on our fingers. Two themes. Restoration of his honor. In gathering to Israel. Then in 25, he says, I'm going to clean you up. Verse 26, he says, I'm going to give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. Is this a new covenant experience? Yes, it is. In verse 27, he says, I'm going to put my spirit in you, and I'm going to cause you to walk in my laws 
And you're going to be careful to observe my judgments. Okay? That's called Torah observance. So what we see here is five things that are described in the New Covenant experience. We're really strong in two of them. We're strong in Him cleansing us within. This is a personal experience. And we are really strong in Him giving us that new heart and new spirit. That's something we, we really, we've experienced through Messiah. And it's something that we're thankful for. But we kind of ignored a couple of the other New Covenant experiences that are described here. Because they might rock our universe. It says, I'm going to take you to the land of Israel. This is a New Covenant promise. He says, I'm going to cause you to observe my Torah. To do the laws and the judgments and stuff. This is a New Covenant promise. And uh, finally he said, I'm going to cause my name to be honored in the world. This is a New Covenant promise that we have yet to see have seen the fulfillment of. And bless God, the day is coming when we are going to see the whole thing. And then he concludes in verse 28 by saying, you're going to live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you'll be my people and I'll be your God. So, thanks to him for that, eh? As he restores us to a full understanding of the new covenant, we realize there's still some things that are going to happen. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.